All right, let's go ahead and uh, open up to 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. Uh, this morning, the title of the sermon is Believe and Live Assured. And we're coming to a close in 1 John. And uh, to do so, before we dive in, I want to give just a quick recap of, of what we have seen and, and learned so far in 1 John. If you remember, John is writing to the church because of a group of false teachers um, who had arisen within their ranks and had started teaching that Jesus was not the Son of God, that Jesus was not the Christ, and they had left the church and they were trying to sway others to follow them. So he's writing the remnant left, the church that was left there, for them to remain steadfast in their belief of who Jesus was and, and for them to be committed because of who Jesus was, to love like Jesus loved and to serve because of that. All right, so... The premise of the book was to remind them that Jesus is God, not that he was simply, as the false teachers were saying, um, a man who was born who just um, received the spirit of Christ, and then that spirit would then leave before death. That's, that's what some of the false teachers were teaching, but that's not the gospel. That's not who Jesus was. Jesus was God in the flesh. He was very God, very God. Um, some of the ancient creeds say, um, that's exactly what the creeds say, is that he was very God of very God, or true God of true God, meaning that he was 100% God and 100% man. There was no divide. He was not 50-50, did not inherit the spirit of Christ, and then that spirit leave. He, Jesus, was God. And so John is writing them to reassure them of their belief so that they could live in the confidence of who he was. And by doing that, they would understand that God is truly a loving God who has put himself and his love on display in sending his son to be the sacrifice for sin. And that the display of God's love for us then leads us to reflect God's love to the world. And so John is writing all of this to this church to encourage them. And now, as we come to the, just the last several verses of John 5, the end of his letter, 1 John, he concludes by giving them just a few final reminders and exhortations to allow them to continue to believe the truth that they had heard from the first, to allow them to live in the assurance of knowing that Jesus is truly God. And so here's the main idea for today, that the true Christian will live a joy-filled life and reflect the love of God in his obedience because his faith is secure in the person and work of Jesus. Now, I want to read these verses for us, and then I will pray over our time together. So if you will, let's stand, and I want to read 1 John 5, starting in verse 5, actually. Um, verse 5 is not up here, but I want to back up to verse 5 to carry on from last week. 1 John, starting in verse 5. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. Not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood. And these three agree. If we receive the testimony of men, the testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar 
because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his son. Whoever has the son has life. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the son of God. That you may know that you have eternal life. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. If anyone sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us understanding, so that we may know him who is true, and we are in him who is true, in his Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God and eternal life. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your word, and I pray now that as we work through this text, God, that you continue to reveal yourself to us so that we would be made more into the image of Jesus, to be better equipped to do the work you have called us to do, to be better prepared to live as disciples who go on to make disciples. God, let your word continue to root itself within us so that we may be like a tree planted by streams of water, always bearing fruit, always honoring our King, our Creator. Father, as we close out this letter, First John, may we be encouraged and reminded of the fact that Jesus is God and that you love us by putting Jesus, your son, on display, sacrificing him for the forgiveness of the sin of his people. I pray, Father, that as we come here this morning, that whatever is going on in our lives, whatever potentially could be distracting us, will just simply fade, at least for these moments, so that we may fix our attention on your word and listen to your spirit speak through your word. We ask that we would hear this word and be assured That is, those who have trusted in Jesus for salvation will be assured. Those who have not trusted in Jesus, that they would come to know Christ. Surrendering to him for life and salvation. Surrendering to him as the true God. And worthy of surrendering to I pray that our time together would bring you honor and would bring you glory. That you would bless the reading of your word. That the hearts of your people would be encouraged. And that those who know not Jesus would come to know him. All for the glory of your name. Amen. Go ahead and be seated. So again, the main idea is this, that the true Christian will live a joy-filled life and reflect the love of God and his obedience because his faith is secure in the person and work of Jesus. So as we conclude 1 John, again, John leaves a few final 
statements, final reminders for the church. The first is that Jesus is the Son of God. Again, backing up to verse 5 and into verse 6, we read this. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? This is He, Jesus, who came by water and blood. Jesus Christ, not by the water only, but by the water and the blood. And the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. So Jesus is the Son of God. He came victoriously, and Christians, that is those who trust in this Jesus, overcome by our faith in Him. So again, back to the main idea. The true Christian will live a joy-filled life and reflect the love of God in his obedience because of this. Because his faith, that is our faith, is secure in the person and work of Jesus. We do not overcome by our own merit. We do not overcome by our own abilities, by our own talents, by our own work. We overcome by our faith in Jesus, who is the one who actually overcomes. And again, John is writing to this church addressing false teachers who are trying to take the divine nature of Jesus away. They want to um, take the power of Jesus away by saying that he was not truly God. That he was simply a man who was born and he inherited the spirit of Christ who then left him before he died to maintain some type of mystical perfection. But what John is reassuring them is that Jesus is truly God. He's not simply a man because if he was simply a man who inherited the spirit of Christ, then the death of Christ would not be worth anything because he would simply be another sinful man. He has to be the son of God. Isaiah says it was the will of the Lord to crush him so that we could be redeemed by the blood of his son. So Jesus comes and Jesus comes victoriously and Jesus dies the debt that we should have died to pay the debt that we owed to redeem us as his people. Well, what is the proof? Verse 6, this is he who came by water and blood. Historical fact. Most people who deny that Jesus is God will attest to the fact that Jesus was a truly historical figure, that he was a man that people followed. And like we said several weeks ago, C.S. Lewis said, you either believe that Jesus is either um, a liar, a lunatic, a legend, or he's Lord. And so the fact that he's saying he came by water and blood attests to this. And there's actually three witnesses here that attest to who Jesus is. The first two are water and blood. Again, this is he who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. The water and blood are simply pointing to the baptism and the death of Jesus. Some say that it's not the baptism and death, that it's the water that come from the side of Jesus. But there, there are some issues with that. We're not going to get into the issues with that. And when I say issues, like in the original languages and all that, we're not going to get into that. But what the water and blood actually point to is the baptism and the death of Jesus. The baptism of Jesus signifying the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. He had been here, but his ministry begins at his baptism. Um, the voice of God is heard from heaven. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove. And God says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. Baptism, the water pointing to the beginning of Jesus' earthly ministry. And the blood obviously pointing to the end of his earthly ministry at his crucifixion. At the beginning and the end. It's pointing to both of those. And what John is doing, again, he's arguing against these false teachers who are denying the humanity and the deity of Jesus. Remember earlier I said that the ancient creeds say that he was very God of very God or either true God of true God. Meaning, he was both 100% man and 100% God. He was not a 50-50 split. He had to be both 100% man and 100% God. For his atoning sacrifice to be effectual. And the heresy again was that Christ simply came on to this person Jesus. And then left before his death. But the fact that it says that Jesus Christ 
came by water and blood points to this argument that John is making that they are teaching a false doctrine. The water and the blood refutes their, their idea that the Spirit of Christ came onto this man, Jesus, and left. And it refutes it because if they are correct, then all of the other Scripture is wrong. And, the deny, and to deny all of Scripture is basically to say, why are you even teaching what you're teaching, right? Why follow the Bible if it's not about God redeeming His people? Why submit to the scripture if it's not about God coming as the God man to save his people from their sins so that he could be glorified in the saving work at Calvary? If Jesus is simply another man who inherited a powerful spirit, then his death does nothing. Because all of scripture is pointing to a perfect spotless lamb, a perfect spotless sacrifice. And if Jesus was a man who inherited a spirit, then he is still a man born into sin. But we know that Jesus was not born the way we all were born. He was born through the working of God through the spirit. And so John is refuting their idea to remind them that Jesus is God. And he goes on with the third witness, which is the Spirit. He says, in the Spirit, this is the second half of verse 6. So not by the water only, but by the water and the blood and the Spirit is the one who testifies because the Spirit is truth. You see, all throughout Scripture, the Spirit is testifying, well, all throughout the New Testament, the Spirit is testifying to Christ. He's testifying to the birth of Christ. He's testifying to the baptism of Christ. He's testifying at the teaching and the ministry of Christ. You hear and see the Spirit at work. In John chapter 15, um, this same apostle is writing in his gospel, and he says this, these are the words of Christ in John 15, 26. When the Counselor comes, that is, the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth who goes out from the Father, He will testify about me. The Holy Spirit is truth. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is part of the triune God. He's part of the Godhead. This is why the Trinity is one of the bedrock foundational doctrines of true Christianity. It's one God in three essences. God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. They all play their parts in redemption. To deny that the Spirit is of the Godhead is to deny Scripture. To deny Scripture is, in essence, to deny God. And that is not the case. So we believe that the Spirit is of God because He is God and He is truth. He goes on in verses 7 and 8. For there are three that testify, the Spirit and the water and the blood, and these three agree. In the Old Testament, we see that it was a requirement that for a claim to be proven or accepted that you had to have two to three witnesses. So John backs that up in talking to these people who probably had a little bit of um, more of, of Judaistic lean um, in their beliefs, but they had twisted it with some New Testament gospel, New Covenant teaching, and they come up with their whole entirely own system. So in order to um, speak to them and to remind them of um, the necessity of both the Old and the New Covenants, the Old and New Testaments, he appeases them by giving them those two to three witnesses. The water, the blood, and the Spirit. So in the Old Testament, according to Old Testament law, if you had two, especially three witnesses, come forward to make a claim, then it was accepted. Obviously, it can be a flawed system if those three come and they are a cohort and they make a false claim, but that's the way the law was. That's how they lived. And so John comes forward and he says he came by the water, he came by the blood, and he came by the Spirit. Now, there is a little difference in those three, correct? The water and the blood point to the humanity of Jesus. The Spirit points to the deity of Jesus, the expositor's commentary actually breaks it down extremely well, and it says this. 
These witnesses, so these three witnesses, represent the earthly ministry of Jesus, that is the beginning, the water, the end, and the blood, and the present work of God through His Spirit. These three witnesses agree in their testimony. The water and blood testify that He came to us. That is, God came to us. He was baptized. And it's interesting, right? Because how often do we question um, why Jesus, the perfect Son of God, would have been baptized? Even John the Baptist questioned that, right? Could it not have even been simply for this argument? To prove that Jesus is the Son of God. But then also, again, to his humanity and the blood. If he was completely divine, he would not have bled like a normal human being. But the water and the blood testify that he came to us. And the Spirit testifies that he came for us. That is, that God came. So understanding the water and the blood as the baptism and death of Jesus points to his earthly ministry. It points to the, to the fact that, and to remind us that God came to save his people from their sin. He's not just simply another man doing good works. He's not simply another man appeasing a bunch of people. He's not simply trying to live a positive life. It's God who came to save his people from their sin. He lived and he died and he lives again. So Jesus, the God-man, Came to save sinners. God came to save sinners. Not that God requires us to ascend to Him, but God descends to us. The perfect, holy, righteous, majestic creator of all things would step into our mess to pull us out. No other religion can make that claim. It's all about how we can work our way to God, but not with Christianity. It's how God has worked his way to us. And that's a basic truth, that Christ saves sinners. And if you're a Christian here today, I'm sure you could echo with Paul that we are the chief. And yet Christ saves us. We simply can't divorce the truth that Jesus is both God and man. When we divorce Jesus' manhood from his nature as God, then we lose the gospel. It goes on with the testimony of God. Look at verse 9. If we receive the testimony of men... The testimony of God is greater. For this is the testimony of God that he has borne concerning his son. Whoever believes in the son of God has the testimony in himself. Whoever does not believe God has made him a liar because he has not believed in the testimony that God has borne concerning his son. So according to Old Testament law, those three witnesses were enough. But just in case, God goes a little further. And he puts his own testimony in there, which is greater than man's. That is to leave no doubt. Multiple times in the New Testament, we see account of God's voice being heard testifying about Jesus. We hear his voice speaking at the baptism of Jesus. We hear his voice at the transfiguration of Jesus. We hear his voice at the triumphal entry of Jesus. The very fact of the matter is that God is truth. How many times do we come to a word, love, truth, holiness, and we see that God is the very definition of those things? God is truth. God is not an example of truth. God is truth. And a denial of God or denial of God's truth and God's word is to deny God himself. Which is why we submit to the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Our faith in Christ is key. Look at verses 11 and 12. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in His Son. 
Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Trusting in Christ is the key to salvation. And the reward for our trusting in Christ is eternal life. It's the gift given by God. But I want you to notice something. It's past tense. Verse 11. Let's read this again. And this is the testimony. Right? Not a testimony, the testimony. This is the testimony. That God what? Gave us eternal life. Redemption accomplished and applied. God knew you. God knew me. And he saves us regardless. Why do we say Romans 5, 8 so often? This. God demonstrates his own love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. God gave. Not will give according to how we live or will give if we do this or if we do that or even if we don't do these things, but he gave. Us eternal life, and this life is in the Son. Now, do not mishear me. I'm not saying that everyone it will receive eternal life. That's not what I'm saying. Because he goes on in verse 12 to give clarity. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. So who is it? Who is who are the ones who have eternal life? It is those who have trusted in Jesus as the son of God who has come to redeem his people, to save his people from their sins. Whoever does not have the son of God does not have life. Now, that's not to say that those who do not trust God simply die and they faint off into non-existence, but they spend eternity separated from the love and the grace of God. So belief in Jesus is key. The redemption of God towards his people has already been accomplished in Jesus. And the good news for those who have trusted in Christ is that we can rest in the sovereign work of God in Christ. We are free to live for the glory of God. I'm not trying to attain salvation. I'm simply honoring my king. I'm glorying in the work that he has already done. I'm simply reflecting his goodness and his love towards me. So to rest in the truth and the promise of God's testimony of life in Jesus gives us as Christians assurance of his love for us. And that he is always with us. To reject that is to taste death. There is no hope of life without Christ. So then, friends. Jesus is the Son of God. And if you have not trusted Christ as the Son of God who has come to die in your place for your sin, then I beg you to do so. Now, the good news is, is that for those who do trust in Christ, we live a life assured. Which is exactly what John goes to next. He goes to the assurance of believing in Jesus. The end of 1 John actually parallels the beginning of 1 John. That is that Christians find joy in confident assurance that Jesus is the Son of God. So he begins with the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. He ends with the truth that Jesus is the Son of God. Why? To remind us that the only way to truly have joy is to rest in the work of Jesus. 
In week one, the sermon was titled, A Joy-Filled Life, and what it did was it brought attention in the beginning of 1 John 1. It brought attention to the fact that we should trust in Jesus for salvation, and in trusting in Jesus for salvation, we find true joy. And now he returns to the same point. We believe that Jesus is the Son of God, and in so doing, we find assurance because we believe... That Jesus is the Son of God and that He has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. Our confidence and our assurance comes in and only in and through Jesus. You try to do it on your own and see how much confidence and assurance you have. My heart aches for those who believe that we can lose or forfeit our salvation. Could you imagine the agony of what it would look like to live everyday life not knowing if what you did was good enough? Not knowing that when you laid your head on your pillow at night, if you never woke again, would it be enough? But the beauty of trusting in Christ, that if we truly trust in Christ, then we can lay down at night resting in the finished work of God. I love what Spurgeon says. He says, I work like an Arminian and I sleep like a Calvinist. He rests in the finished work of God. He labored for the glory of God during the day, but when he laid his head down at night, he rested in the work of God, knowing that he had done what he could do, and it was up to God to work further. That's you and me. We work for the glory of God, not to attain the merit of God, but simply for the glory of God. And when we lay our heads down at night and when we come to the ends of our life, can we say that we've run our race with endurance? That's the kind of assurance that comes in knowing that Jesus is God. In knowing that Jesus, as God, gave himself for us. And the reward for such right belief, verse 13 I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. We have assurance of the future because of what was accomplished by God through Jesus in the past. We also have assurance in prayer, verse 14. And this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. We have assurance in prayer because we have assurance that he hears our prayers. He hears our prayers and he answers according to his good will. And we have confidence and our confidence comes from knowing that God hears our prayers. We know that when Christ died and he ascended to the right hand of God, that he still is there as our intercessor. He hears the prayers of his people and he delivers them faithfully to the Father. You want to know why it's easy to pray? Because we know that they're being heard. And that they are being answered according to his good will. That's why Jesus says, not my will, Father, but yours be done. He's praying for the Father's will to be accomplished. Now what he's not saying is that as we pray that he's going to give us everything we want. He says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Which is another reason that the spirit living within us is so beautiful because the spirit prays for us and he prays in a way that we know not how to pray. And those prayers are delivered to Christ the King. And he delivers them to the Sovereign Father. And he goes on in talking about our assurance in prayer in verses 16 and 17 in our praying for others. He says, if anyone, verse 16, sees his brother committing a sin, not leading to death, he shall ask and God will give him life. 
to those who commit sins that do not lead to death. There is a sin that leads to death. I do not say that one should pray for that. All wrongdoing is sin, but there is sin that does not lead to death. Now, this is a very obscure set of verses. And there's a reason for that, I do believe. See, first he begins with this encouragement that we should be praying for our brothers and sisters. Especially when we see that they're falling into sin. That's part of our duty. We pray for those we love to keep them from sinning. Because the truth is, is that every sin always leads to greater and more sin. It's a slippery slope. You, you slip at the top, you're going to the bottom. There were multiple times on our trip this past weekend where we were riding, and I joked with Blake because you have two different types of people who drive, right? You have people who hug the yellow line, and you have people who hug the white line. Blake is one who hugs the white line. And in mountain roads, if you're familiar with mountain roads, when you hit the white line, there's not much past the white line. And there were several times where we're, we were on roads, believe it or not, that we were not actually supposed to be on, um, where the edge of the road was simply the edge. And you look off, and I had multiple thoughts. We're like, man, this could be the time where you read about us on the news where we just roll all the way down this mountain. That's what sin does. If you miss, you're gone, right? So the severity of sin and the importance of, of calling our brothers and sisters out on sin is that. We're trying to protect from that landslide. It's always and should always be done in love. You know, there's an interesting thing that happens in American culture especially where we hear people who claim to be Christians constantly quote, misquote Scripture, judge not lest you be judged. You're not supposed to judge me. Doesn't Scripture say you're supposed to plunk the plank out of your own eye before you... And, and, and we know, because we've went over this multiple times here, that those are always misrepresentations of Scripture and there's, there's a misunderstanding of the Scripture. If we, if we are the people of God and we love the people of God, we have a responsibility to the people of God to come alongside and encourage and say, mm, you might want to, to be careful because you're walking down a dangerous path. And that's always a difficult thing to do. But it's what God has called us to do. The, the interesting thing is, and, and where you can really begin to tell the sanctification aspect of someone is when you come alongside and you, and you do that, when the pride begins to take over and it's like, who are you to tell me? Because I've seen that happen, right? But then what happens later is the Holy Spirit begins to work and it begins to, to work in those people and, and God is glorified through that as those people come back together and, and the one who was sinning comes to repentance. That's why... Biblical church membership is so vitally important. That's why church discipline is so vitally important. You know, we, we've completely lost sight in, in today's church of what it looks like to practice church discipline um, because we immediately think discipline is such a negative term. But in fact, it was always seen historically as a beautiful thing. You know, most churches historically, or in Baptist churches, would practice three ordinances. Two given through Scripture, specifically baptism and communion, and a third in church discipline because it was discipleship. It's coming along, protecting the church by protecting the souls of those who were slipping into sin. And so what Paul, I mean, Paul, what John is doing here is he's encouraging us to pray for our brothers and sisters, especially when they're falling into sin. But then he also has this interesting issue in the end of verse 16, where he says, I do not say that one should pray for that. Talking about sin that leads to death. Now, I, I, basically what John is doing is he's not saying, yes, do it or don't do it. He's pretty much giving the option to do it or to not do it. And, and this is 
from the commentaries that I read because I was like, I don't understand that. So I had to do a lot of research on that part of the verse. And, and pretty much the, the thing that I kept coming across in, in these commentators was that what John is doing is he's simply assuring them that they should pray for their brothers and sisters, but there comes a point where praying for someone actually starts sucking your own soul dry. And if we truly believe that God is sovereign and we truly believe that God is working, then there comes a point where we have given all we can and so we rest completely in the leading of God. So again, we lay our head down on the pillow at night trusting God to work. And so that's what John's doing here. He's giving them the assurance of knowing that God is going to work God's plan. There's nothing that's going to change God's plan. And so at the end of the day, we faithfully pray because we deeply love our brothers and sisters. But there comes a point where we have to trust God to do it. And how often do our prayers not lead to trusting God? We demand God to give us answers. We demand God to work. We demand. And when we don't see those things happening, we get angry with God. But again, back in verse 14, he says that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God is working to accomplish his plans. Remember, he is all wise. We are not. So what's the moral? Out of love, we should be praying for our brothers and sisters. But it's okay to get to a point where we lay our head down at night and say, Thy will be done. Now, he closes with an exhortation to the church. So what are the three final remarks that he makes in closing? He reminds once again that Jesus is truly the Son of God. And he gives them assurance of believing in Christ. That they have assurance of eternal life. That they can be assured to pray for God's will to be done. And he closes by exhorting them. Verse 18, he says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. But he who was born of God protects him. The evil one does not touch him. He's referring to salvation, right? Everyone who has been born of God. That is, everyone excuse me, who has trusted in the saving work of Christ, redeemed. Everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning. He's, it's a reference back to 1 John verse three, uh, chapter 3, verse 9, where he says this, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. So again, once... We have trusted in Christ. Our heart is changed. Last week we saw that we are a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. And Paul in Galatians 2 says, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who came and gave himself for me. I'm not the same person that I was. And if I'm not the same person that I was, then I must be living a different life than I was. But if I claim to be a Christian and my life looks nothing different than it did before that claim initiated, then I'm not a Christian. Johnny Hunt used to say, no change, no Christ. If we have truly met the graciousness of our Savior, then our lives will be different. So again, what's, what John is saying and declaring is that a true Christian is a repentant Christian. That means we will not continue in sin. Now, will we sin? Yes. But when we do, our heart will be so grieved that we have no option but to come before God and beg His forgiveness. And knowing and trusting that he will forgive. So what does he mean by those who continue in sin? It is those who continue to sin without any grieving. If I continue, say that I'm in business and I continue in poor business practices. And I go to church on Sunday and I say that I'm a believer. But I'm continuously screwing people over all week, all, every moment of every day. And I'm okay with that. Then guess what that's actually saying about my heart? 
that my heart has not been redeemed by Christ. If I'm okay with that, if I say that I'm a Christian and I continue to just live a life that speaks everything anti-Jesus, not my definition of what it means to follow Jesus, but what Scripture says of following Jesus, then I need to take a really, really close second glance at my soul. William Plummer, who, if you ever get into a lot of deep Bible study, is an interesting guy. He, Spurgeon actually said that Plummer was one of the few he actually would look to in commentaries. So, so you're thinking like 1600s old, right? Old, old. Um, if you ever want to study the Psalms, he has a commentary on Psalms that's big enough to like build a house on top of. But it's, it's really good. This, this is what he says. A child of God may sin, but his normal condition is one of resistance to sin. So we're going to fail, but are we trying to resist sin? Am I fighting the nature to sin? Am I putting myself in situations where I'm going to continuously fall? If so, then I may need to actually check my heart. But if I'm constantly fighting against those things, that is a definition of sanctification. That I'm trusting the Lord's leading. That I'm walking in a path that is leading to holiness. So, if that be the case, a Christian then has security and salvation. Because our salvation is entirely the work of the sovereign Savior. It's not my work that leads to salvation. It's not my absence of sinning because I can't not sin. Right? We all are sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Because of one man's sin, all have sinned. So we must lean into another for hope. And that other is Jesus, the Son of God. It's His work and entirely His work that saves. And we live in a culture of do more, try harder, and that's not the gospel. Because if we're doing more and trying harder to earn the favor of God, then we're doing so out of duty and there's no joy there. And there's no hope there. The only true joy comes in resting in the fact that Jesus has died for me. See, as Christians, we're going to face times of difficulty. We're going to face times of pain. But the hope we have is that we will be able to stand complete before Jesus because of the work of Jesus. Satan is powerful. Way more powerful than you and I. But he is completely powerless when it comes to our souls. He has no dominion over the salvation of God's people. Now, he can make your life painful, Job. Have you considered my servant, Job? Do all that you want. Just don't touch him. He takes all. He takes everything from Job. Job continues to praise the Lord. So he allows him to touch Job and he becomes covered with these boils. And his friends and his wife are constantly, just curse God. What have you done? Curse, curse God. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He couldn't touch the security of Job's soul. Because Jesus is greater. Verse 19. We know. John writing to the church. Writing to other believers. We know that we are from God. And the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And we know that the Son of God has come and has given His understanding, given us understanding, so that we may know Him who is true. And we are in Him who is true. In His Son, Jesus Christ. He is the true God in eternal life. Once again, closing out, John is reassuring the church that those who confess Jesus is the Christ, they are His. That Satan may be the prince of this world, but Jesus is the king of the universe. Satan has no dominion over the things of God. And for those who trust in Christ, they are his. And people may slander, they may bring pain, they may throw stones, they may leave. But those who are Jesus's are his. And he is assuring them that in the midst of darkness, that is that their friends, their family are leaving, they're falling away to this false teaching. They're denying God, they're turning their backs on Christ. But his message to them is this. That the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness will not overcome it. Jesus is truly God in the flesh. He is God come, and He is worthy of trust, and He is worthy of praise, and He is worthy of glory, because He is the author and the perfecter of their faith. And He loves greatly. And our response to the greatness of And the glories and the love of God is to shine that light to the ends of the earth. And he gives them one final charge. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. Stand firm on the promises of God. Rest completely in the work of Christ as the foundation. So the conclusion is this. If you have trusted in Christ, live and rest assured in Him. If you have not, you need to trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank You so much for Your Word. To be able to approach Your Word and to rest in Your Word as it clearly points us to our King, Jesus. God, we pray that we would be encouraged and assured as your people. And we cry out that if there are those here who have never truly trusted in Jesus, God, that you would just move in their hearts today to confess Jesus as Lord. May we be convicted of our sin and may we rest in the saving work of our Savior. In Christ's name we pray, amen.